If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. Redistricting, bipartisanship, the plight of the Democratic Party in Missouri. These are just some of the questions that some Missourians have on their mind regarding state politics and government. On this episode of Politically Speaking, we do our best to answer your questions about state politics in our first ever mailbag episode. We have analysis, we have audio clips, and we have an opinion or two. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm one of your hosts, Sarah Kellogg. I cover the State House as well as politics. Joining me, he's actually right across from me today, is St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent. Jason Rosenbaum. Hello, Jason. It's good to see you face to face, Sarah. I know, definitely. And and this week, I guess you can kind of see it in a couple of ways. Either there is no guest, we're the guests, or we have a lot of guests because we're doing, is this our first ever? I think so. Our first ever mailbag episode. We, we have tried to solicit feedback and incorporate it into the show occasionally. But I, I think this is the first standalone show where we are actually just answering a bunch of questions. So I always like to break ground on this show, which is ancient at this point. <laughs> it's, eight, it's more than eight years old. Yeah. But you didn't know that. Um, yeah, I didn't know how long. I know it's been going around for a while, but I'm glad that we can still introduce new things and, and get new guests. This is exciting. Absolutely. So, so over the past month or so, Jason and I have been asking folks to send us any and any question, every and any question they can think of about Missouri politics and government. And Jason, I believe a lot of those questions came to you. How was the turnout? I, I think it was pretty good. I posted it on Twitter um, and Facebook, but I, I have to say, and you'll see this in the in the questions, the the most of uh, vibrant response was from the Missouri Politics Reddit page. Ah, well, I'm in the quote-unquote hosting chair, as it were, just because you're definitely going to know a lot of these answers, but I'm happy to jump in when I can for a question or two. Should Absolutely. we get started? Yeah, let's get let's get moving. All right, so our first question is from Pete G., who asks, whatever happened to make Missouri such a red state? This is the state that provided us with Harry Truman, Stuart Symington, Eagleton, the Carnahans, Claire McCaskill, to mention a few. When did Missouri turn, or was it gradual? There's a pretty straightforward answer to this. Democrats lost their ability to hold down margins in rural Missouri and prevail in more conservative suburbs like Jefferson County, and uh, places like Buchanan County, which are technically not suburbs, but are traditionally Democratic. And even though they've had gains in St. Louis and Clay counties, for example, that they don't have a broad enough geographic coalition to win a statewide election. And, and Pete G. mentioned Claire McCaskill when I was interviewing her earlier this year. She mentioned one of the reasons she lost in 2018 was due to the inability to piece the urban, suburban, and rural coalition together. I mean, I had 8,000 more votes than Lacey Clay did. In, in the, in, so um, it, when I when I lost in 2018, now he ended up losing two years later, but um, it, you know, it wasn't, 
this wasn't a problem of turnout in progressive areas of the state. It wasn't a problem of margins in black communities or any other communities. I absolutely, we far exceeded our numbers. This was all about people turning out that totally bought into Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump camped out here, as you remember. So Donald Trump, not Josh Hawley, gets credit for that win. You know, I have my kind of my question is, you know, opponent selection might have also been something for Claire's loss. I mean, she very strategically picked someone in 2012 that she could win against. So my question is kind of would she have lost earlier? Do you think that she was kind of the last domino to fall? That, that's a good question. The bigger one of the bigger what ifs in Missouri politics is if Sarah Steelman or John Bruner had been the nominee in 2012, would Claire McCaskill have lost because Mitt Romney won the state by nine points? Mm-hmm. I think that's certainly a reasonable assumption assuming that neither one of them would have made the catastrophic mistakes that Todd Akin did. Yeah, I think with what Claire said, talking about kind of the rural areas, I do think that is kind of the primary outreach that needs to happen for Democrats because the suburbs, you know, because the suburbs are getting more stronger and more competitive. And it depends on what you mean by suburbs. Like yeah. we always uh, assume suburbs are, are places like St. Louis County, but I consider St. Charles and Jefferson County and Lincoln County suburbs too. And Democrats in Missouri have not done a particularly good job of winning there. So our next question, uh, I think you know this person, uh, comes from Lauren Todd. Can you explain who Lauren Todd is for our listeners who might not know? Lauren Todd is my wife. (laughs) So her first question is, and the first two came in uh, GIF form, specifically office GIF form. So the first question is, uh, first of all, how dare you? And second is, why are you the way that you are? And then her third question is, how can the national DNC connect with Missouri? Why is there this huge disconnect? I I can't answer the first two questions. You can't? I, I don't know why I am the way I am and I, and how dare I. I don't know. Um, but I actually wrote down like five reasons to answer the third question. It's a good question. Because it's a really good question. I explained like the, the actual reason why Democrats are losing because they've lost their geographic coalition. It's a whole other question about why that geographic coalition was lost in the first place. So here's a few reasons. First is the erasure of meaningful campaign finance limits. Um, It's made the state Democratic and Republican parties much less powerful. So that means there's less money to flow into county parties that can do the groundwork for state legislative and countywide candidates in traditionally Democratic areas. And for a lot of how I answer this question, I'm going to use clips from when I went to Northeast Missouri in 2017. And the first clip is from a woman named Marianne Lovell. She's a longtime Democratic activist in Pike County. And she kind of touched on this phenomenon when I interviewed her. Democrats became so secure they were going to win every election. They just gave up trying. And all of a sudden, we allowed the Republicans to take over. We became complacent, and that was the big thing. We were also targeted. We were warned several years ago that this happened. Uh, it started out, actually, the first seats that were won in Northeast were, were Monroe County. And when we came back from a meeting where this was discussed, our Pipe County people scoffed at us. And what we saw coming and what was predicted actually happened. So the demise of the powerful party system led to the rise of powerful candidates who can raise huge amounts of money to further their political ambitions. But since Republicans are, are kind of have a geographical advantage because they're running in places where there are more Republican voters 
like GOP contenders more often than not are going to be the beneficiaries of that. Like more people are going to donate to candidates who are more likely to win yeah. than Democratic candidates who are more likely to lose. Um, and, you know, the, the same principle kind of applies to legislative contests. Like large donors, especially corporate ones that typically donate to both parties, uh, may need like legislative action at a certain point in time. So they're they're not going to give a lot of money to the political party that's not going to win. And this is like the same reason you see Republicans in Illinois and Massachusetts not make any meaningful gains. Like, why would they even if you're like a great person, like you're not going to be well supported if your chances of winning are low and as, as Marianne Lovell points out in this next clip, because of this vicious cycle, you're less likely to see strong Democratic candidates even run in rural areas. People don't want to put their name out there to get all the family matter, family trash and all the untruths told on them. And so why put yourself through that turmoil and be called everything but human and accused of everything. Why put your family through that? I think this is the reason we don't get the candidates to come out who are willing to put their name on the ballot. So those are structural issues Mm -hmm. when I talk about like money and organization. But I, I think that they pale in comparison to the number one reason why Democrats lost ground in rural and exurban Missouri. And And that is the departure of more conservative voters from the National Democratic Coalition. Back when I started reporting in Missouri in 2006, it was pretty commonplace to see Democrats who may oppose abortion rights or gun control elect Democratic candidates that shared those type of views. But they also would support things like union rights, expanding Medicaid or expanding the social safety net in general. Or also they may have opposed the corporate consolidation of agriculture, especially in more rural areas. Many of these voters had been electing Democrats for decades, probably out of social or nostalgic obligations. So they may have remembered like what FDR did in the New Deal Mm -hmm. or what Lyndon Johnson did in the Great Society. But once national Democrats began to emphasize their support for abortion rights or gun control a lot more aggressively, Missouri voters became less able to disconnect local candidates from the national party. And that led to places like Northeast and Southeast Missouri becoming bright red. And now what I'm going to have a clip now from Ralph Griesbaum, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. But he kind of explained this phenomenon in Marion County, which when I started covering Missouri politics was a very Democratic county and is now an extremely Republican one. You know, it used to be uh, when I was growing up, uh, and, and even in county politics, you, you you were a Democrat or you weren't elected. In, in Marion County, that was that way a long time. And a lot of that was because I won't say that the, the social aspect of it followed down the lines, but now uh, the people that are running are running on the Republican side because they are more socially Republican. And I don't know that the the... The people have changed that much in the county as just the people running for offices uh, are, are running on the more conservative side. So I, I don't really know if there's a good solution here. There has been attempts in the last 10 years for Missouri Democrats to run more conservative candidates and they've lost. Um, there's been times where they've run more progressive or liberal candidates and they've lost, too. I think the genie is out of the bottle. I don't think that there's an obvious solution to this unless 
rural and exurban and suburban voters just naturally sour on Republicans. Well, is, is the solution not trying to get those voters back, but to reach out to new voters? Like, is, is that could be the solution for, you know, for possibly higher turnout. I know that doesn't guarantee, but I feel like maybe that is if the genie's out of the bottle, then you can't get those voters back. Is it just getting new voters? I, I mean, possibly. But as McCaskill pointed out in that clip, she made the argument that she did get really high turnout in traditionally Democratic areas, but it didn't matter because the turnout in Republican areas were also high. And that overcame any gains that Democrats made. The solution for Missouri Democrats is just a hope that people that are voting for Republicans now don't like Republicans anymore, mm. which may seem like, again, wishful thinking, but it happened in 2006 and it could happen. Let's just say if there's a Republican president after 2024 that's unpopular that could be the opportunity for Democrats to gain. Well, and I think as a party grows bigger, you know, we've seen this in the legislature, you know, they split even further and that could be too far for some people and that could lead to that. So our next question comes from Derek N. who asks, after Obama came close to winning Missouri in 2008, which election or candidate do you think foreshadowed Missouri's hard swing to the right? Some states slowly turn one way or the other, but Missouri seems to drastically shift right. What moment sticks out to you? It was actually in 2010. It was two races for two separate state Senate seats that were largely rural. So when Senators Wes Schumeyer and Frank Barnett's lost re-election in 2010 by the exact same percentage, their Republican opponents got like 58% of the vote. Um, that to me was the beginning of the end of the whole rural foothold among Democrats. And I think that was a, an alarm bell that things were going to get really, really bad for the party in that area of the state. And it did. So our next question, um, we're going to keep them going. This one comes from Reddit by Vice Admiral Walrus. Great has, name, by really the way. Really good name, uh, who asks, Springfield has historically been one of Missouri's Republican anchors. Recently, it's been trending more blue. Not rapidly enough to make Greene County blue, but the region currently sends two Democrats to the statehouse. Any insights as to the state of politics there and why it has changed? So I'm not from the Springfield area, but I actually consulted with somebody who has lived there basically his entire life, and that's former. House Speaker Elijah Har, And he notes that Springfield has always had Democratic legislators, including in the 1990s when he was growing up there. Um, he points to the influence of Missouri State University, where there's a lot of college students and a lot of professors that live in certain parts of Springfield. I also think what helped make sure that there are two Democrats was, first of all, there's one seat that is very Democratic, which is represented by House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid. The other is represented by State Representative Betsy Fogel in a seat that is more 50-50. And it's widely believed that she won that seat because she ran a better campaign. Here's her talking about why she thinks she won uh, late last year on Politically Speaking. And then I also think, I, or at least I hope, that the fact that me and my team decided to run a very positive campaign helped us in the long run. Um, for those of you who don't know, there was a lot of money poured into my district um, to spend on attack ads against me and my team. Uh, we never wanted to be that campaign. We never wanted to um, use that narrative and we chose not to. And I think that that in a year when there was so much negativity, I think people appreciated that that wasn't what we were trying to accomplish. We wanted to talk about us and our campaign and let the people decide who the best fit to represent them is. Missouri Mapper on Twitter asks, with the Better Elections Group now pushing for an initiative petition to get a constitutional amendment on the Missouri ballot for ranked choice voting, has there been any renewed discussion for implementing primary runoffs? 
I, no, I actually <laughs> think there's been less after the surprise of last session. One of the most fun surprises of the 2021 session was when I was there in the last week and suddenly this runoff idea was introduced at almost the last minute in the Senate. Um, I, I think that l- this year was the year to pass that. Mm. Passing a system that is going to radically change how statewide and congressional elections work in 2022, hi- hypothetically like two months before the primary, is going to be extremely confusing to voters and is also going to just make life miserable for local election officials. And uh, we actually had Mike O'Donnell on the show. He's yeah. a Republican from South St. Louis County. He kind of expressed doubt that this idea is really going to go anywhere. First, yeah, it looks like we're, we're building a system because of the current situation, yeah. right? And, and, and you, you mentioned that. But also, you're creating an additional expense. I mean, a statewide election is not a cheap thing. Um, so I think there's some reluctance to, to do that as well. I'm, I almost look at it and, and say, we're trying to create a solution in search of a problem. And I didn't even get to the fact that it's widely believed that the runoff idea is specifically targeted at former Governor Eric Greitens. And it's based off the fear that since there's going to be this gigantic Republican primary now, that he's going to win a plurality and he's going to be a weaker general election opponent. Well, what I have said on this show many times is you can try to create a new system, which may or may not work, or you could like beat him in election. Like there are stuff that he has done, which could cause him to lose. And if you can't, uh, if you can't convince voters not to vote for him, that's not the fault of the system. That's the fault of the other candidates. That's the candidate's responsibility. We need to take a quick break, but when we return, we're answering more of your questions. And we have returned to Politically Speaking for this special mailbag episode. I'm Sarah Kellogg. I'm joined by my other host. Jason Merzenbaum. We are face-to-face answering your questions. I am reaching into my imaginary bag, which is this document that has all of our questions on it. Let's keep going. So Joe on Twitter asks, what issues have, he has a threefold question actually. He asks, what issues have a lot of bipartisan support in the Missouri legislature? Is full legalization of marijuana in the state's future? And what issues are Missouri politicians starting to think about that may be a wave? So I'm going to just answer the second question and let you handle the other two about uh, legalized marijuana, because we're recording this on Friday, December 3rd. And yesterday, December 2nd, I actually went to the kickoff of a ballot initiative that would legalize marijuana for adult use. And I don't want to like I I hate predicting elections. And it's very possible that maybe there's a robust opposition campaign if this gets on the ballot. But I, I think that it's very likely that if this gets on the ballot, that marijuana will be legal in Missouri mm-hmm. for adult use. And I'm not the only person who thinks that. I was actually interviewing Governor Mike Parson about this issue earlier this year. Well, I would much rather legislators have that discussion out here and see if there is a solution to have one way or the other than doing the ballot initiative. Because we know even the last time we did that with the medical marijuana, that that created issues too, both good and bad, to try to administer it. And, you know, I I haven't changed my opinion on that. I I, probably agree with you. If it got on a ballot, it's probably going to pass. But I think it's important right now. We just really need to get what we got in place to make sure we've got everything in place to have to run the thing that we have right now. And I think we are in the process of that. So we'll just have to see how that comes out. But again, I think that's the reason people get sent up to the legislative branches. You get sent up here yeah. 
to make tough decisions. But when you don't make decisions, that's why these ballot initiatives kick in. I think that, that there's a misconception out there that legalizing marijuana is strictly a Democratic issue. If you look at the results from 2018 when Missouri legalized marijuana for medical use, passed with almost 66 percent of the votes, which meant that Republicans were clearly voting for this. And especially with the fact that Illinois has legalized marijuana and people who live on that very porous border with Illinois can just go over the border and get marijuana and probably not get caught. I'm not really sure what the purpose of keeping it illegal anymore is because the, 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 the cat's out of the barn, so to speak. Why don't you take the other two elements of those questions about bipartisanship? Because that's a question you've been asking a lot of our guests, Sarah. Yeah, exactly. So through these podcast episodes, I've been asking this question a lot, both to Republicans and Democrats. And while I've gotten a lot of like affirmative responses of, yes, people can work across the aisle. Yes, there are some issues that, you know, we'll never see, you know, compromise. But a lot that they do pass is normally supported by both parties. You know, that's what I've heard a lot. But, you know, as far as specificity, you know, I haven't really gotten like, well, we can work together on this. But so what I will look to... uh, you know, is the veto session. I know, I'm I'm sorry, we're going back to the veto session. But what I saw there was a lot of bipartisan support for overturning some of Parsons line item vetoes concerning like the welfare of children. So I think when it comes to issues with the welfare of children, like maybe looking at the upcoming budget, I think some of that is definitely going to go towards raises to DSS workers, especially in the children's division. I think children's issues are definitely an area where we're going to see a lot of bipartisan support. Also, you know, just recently, where we are officially in the pre-filing period for the upcoming session. And we saw, as and as we saw, both Republicans and Democrats filed bills that would increase parents' participation or awareness of what's going on in their children's schools, you know, labeled as parent bills of rights. So I think that could be some areas of bipartisan support. You know, we have seen um, separate bills filed, but I think there could be consolidation of that. Um, as far as what issues they're starting to think of that could be a ways off, you know, I'm not 100% sure how to answer that one as a newbie, but in some ways it's safe to say Any new bill or new idea that gains traction could take years to pass. You know, we recently asked Senator Holly Rader about the passage of the statewide prescription drug monitoring program, which took years. I think and even, you know, I think you'd agree with me from her going to the House to the Senate was a big reason why. I I think so, because now she has the leverage to, you know, potentially hold up other things if she doesn't get her way. And she had some of that leverage in the House, but not nearly as much in the Senate. So, yeah. So had she not been elected to the Senate, who knows what would happen to the PDMP? So I I, I think, you know, if it doesn't mention the you know, if it doesn't go through the petition process, I think recreational marijuana could be a possible ways off if it goes through the legislature. Yeah, I I think it's a fair assumption that the legislature isn't going to act on this, even though like Governor Parson says that's a good idea. I will just say, though, if they don't act on this and, you know, this initiative petition gets on the ballot and passes, then the legislature can't really complain about how the program works because they had that opportunity. So So I I, I understand people are not comfortable. A lot of people are not comfortable with pot being legal. But, you know, if it's going to be legal anyways, why not put your stamp on so it. So I see that being quote unquote a ways off if it's through the legislature. I think we could see attempts to change the initiative petition process. Yeah. I think that could be something that's continued, but I think that's going to be a ways off if anything happens. And I, and I know we're going to see attempts to change election processes, oh, yeah. whatever that may be. So I think those are things that some, you know, could happen this session, but a lot of them it takes a long time to get a new bill through the legislature. Yeah. So our next question comes from Ethan, the Kiwi on Reddit. I recently learned that the conservation department is pretty independent from 
from the rest of the state government. I'm curious how that came out and how they stayed that way. I love this question. It's a good question. And the number one reason is the Conservation Department is funded through a, a direct sales tax and the Conservation Commission controls how that money is spent. So the fact that neither the governor's office or the legislature has direct say on how that money for that department gets appropriated makes it much more independent than certain agencies. I will just add that Missourians really seem to value parks and open spaces and hunting. So that probably plays a role in making sure the tax always gets reauthorized with wide support. So uh, next question comes from infamous Brad on Reddit, who says, this is a long one, Let's assume that the Supreme Court does strike down Roe v. Wade next June, and let's assume that the makeup of the state government remains about the same. What are Republicans and the state legislature telling you they're going to do when they find out the Missourians are simply traveling one state over to get their abortions and then coming back? What do the Republican governor candidates say they'll do about it? Will they attempt to criminalize the the women who sought abortions? Will they attempt to extradite the doctors and physicians? Will they try to pass a Texas-style bounty hunter lawsuit bill and try to sue Illinois Hope Clinic for women? Or will they just thump the podium and yell a lot and do nothing? So... Frankly, I've seen a lot of national commentators, primarily white dudes like me, expressing shock and surprise that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, like states like Missouri won't have abortion access anymore. Like, where were you for the last 15 years? Obviously not paying attention. Don't you forget, Jason, the the Midwest and flyover country doesn't exist. Now, I think it's also worth mentioning that based off 2019 legislation that that Governor Parson signed into law and, and admittingly is under litigation right now. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, Missouri law states that all abortion would be illegal with the exception of medical emergencies. That may not happen based off this case, although I think a lot of people are fearful of that based off based off the way the Supreme Court justices responded to the attorneys. But I don't think that that was really the crux of the question. The question was, what's going to happen when people go across the border in other states, which is actually a question we asked Senator Bill White when he was on the podcast uh, a, a few weeks ago mm-hmm. um, when we were talking about that issue. And this is what he had to say. We can, we can control the legislation of what happens in our state. Uh, and that, that's all we can do in the state of Missouri. Uh, we currently don't, we, of course, we haven't paid for uh, federal and state law uh, doing our uh, abortions and Medicaid that are not for the protecting the life of the mother type of scenario in the, in the state. Uh, there already are referrals. Uh, going out of state. That's why part of one of the things I was responsible for putting in there is to ensure that the family planning clinics that are making referrals out of state are following exactly our guidelines. And if they're not following our statutes, then they that will be considered in their ability to continue to you know, see be funded by uh, our Mo Health Net system. I think that this is actually a really important question um, because I think it's important to acknowledge that Many Missourians do not live close to St. Louis or Kansas City, making the option of like crossing over the border to another state difficult if they don't have transportation. Or if they can't take off work or if they have to take care of their family, they need the money. There's lots of reasons. Um, All right. So we're going to go to our next question. Um, We have another one from Vice Admiral Walrus of Reddit. God bless you, Vice Admiral Walrus. The next is his question is, what's the latest on Mo5 possibly being carved up as a part of a 7-1-R congressional map? Jason, you got a redistricting question. Oh, my gosh. Is he your best friend now? Are they your best friend now? Mr. Vice Admiral Walrus, you know know the questions that I like. So I want to make this clear that... You know, this may change and I could be wrong. 
But this this assessment is based off me talking with Republicans who are pretty close to the redistricting process, not just like random people. And this is not just a figment of my imagination. I have been on record doubting whether Missouri Republicans are going to pursue a seven to one map. And I want to be very clear what a seven to one map is. That's a scenario where they turn the fifth district, which is held by Democrat Emanuel Cleaver of Kansas City, into something like a 15 plus Republican district. It is certainly possible to do this. People that say you can't do this because it will violate the Voting Rights Act do not know what they're talking about. And frankly, they're making a dubious assumption that since Emanuel Cleaver is black, his district must be majority African-American. It's not. It's majority white. Uh, The reason not to do this amongst a lot of Republicans is, yeah, you may have a seven to one map in 2022, but there's a long term risk if some of the more conservative suburbs in the 6th District, which is held by Sam Graves, or the 4th District, which is an open seat, become more Democratic throughout the decade. And then you've added portions of Kansas City into those districts. So in some ways, Governor Parson's decision not to call a special session on this was really damaging to 7 to 1 proponents. Democrats can now leverage a lot of other bills to prevent that from happening. And they also have another source of leverage that I kind of tweeted about and I'm trying to get more information about. It's called the emergency clause, which would make sure the map goes into effect immediately. And and why does this matter? Well, if a map goes into effect on August 28th, that would require the entire Missouri primary, which I think is on August 3rd or 4th, to be moved, which would be a hellacious situation for election officials. So Democrats in the Senate could easily say, we're not going to adopt an emergency clause under that scenario. And if they got two other Republicans to go along with them they could use that threat of electoral havoc to steer toward a six to two map. Now, one caveat that I'll point out before I stop talking about this issue, um, it's entirely possible that the Republicans could create a fifth district that is less Democratic, but still Democratic leaning. And let's just say it's a plus five or plus nine Democratic district. Emanuel Cleaver could still lose next year, especially if it's a wave Republican year. And in some ways, that is a more long-term favorable outcome because it would keep the 6th and 4th districts super Republican, but potentially the Republicans could get that seat later on in the decade if certain things go their way. So that is a possible scenario, but that would still be considered a 6-2 to map scenario. And that is my analysis, and I'm sticking to it. We have another redistricting question. Oh, no. <laughs> this one is from Throwaway Weirdo 7B. I'm feeling it's a account for this, possibly. But um, they ask, redrawing districts after census. I don't know why in this day and age it isn't done by a computer. Plug in the updated population totals for each zip code. Ignore any other factors such as party, ethnicity, et cetera. And start connecting zip codes until you get to the proper division. Bam, problem solved. If this hasn't already been done elsewhere, this could possibly be solved in six months by a team of skilled programmers. I, I want to just make something clear. Redistricting is done by computers right now. People are not just taking out a map and crayons and drawing lines, okay? I think that'd be amazing to see. It would be amazing, but uh, the key is humans are deciding to do this. And I think that what the questioner is talking about is some sort of computer algorithm that would just draw the district, which actually is an idea that was suggested by Nate Kennedy, who was at Mizzou at the same time as me and actually served on a state legislative redistricting commission in 2011. Here's what he had to say about this in 2017. What I would like to see is going towards uh, an algorithm 
to draw maps. We've got so much data and the technology now that you can draw an equation that can control for uh, the partisan makeup of a district, makes them more of an even 50-50 split instead of being one-sided for one party. Or you can control for uh, communities of interest and control for racial makeup to make sure that uh, minority communities are represented and yet still have a fair map. I think it's an interesting idea, but I think that the big question would be whether an algorithm and how would it take race into consideration? Because in Missouri, you can't really do redistricting without taking that into account simply because the state has a pretty large black population. I don't see us moving to an algorithm system anytime soon. Uh, the next question, which is kind of a fun one for us, which is what's the best way for a candidate to get you to interview them? I don't know if it's up to us. <laughs> I think it's more we want to interview the candidates versus them wanting us, right? I, I think it's just being straightforward and explaining, like, what you're trying to do. Like, every time we invite somebody on this show, we we never give them the questions no. because I don't know what the questions are going to be. A lot of the questions are based on, like, what these people say. But I, we do sometimes give them the general topics, and sometimes the topic is really general. Like, we want to talk about, like, the 2022 session. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a little bit more specific because somebody is really into an issue. You had Ashley Ani on, and you wanted to talk with her about cybersecurity. Yep. Uh, I think generally if you're upfront about, like, what you want to talk about, like, people of all political persuasions are more likely to a- agree to an interview What's kind of your take on this? Well, I, I think, you know, I think it's it's an interesting question because up to me, a big thing is willingness to talk to us. I think a willingness to be challenged on ideas. That's something that's really, you know, vital to me as a reporter is, is someone who's really going to have that free dialogue with us. I think we've been really lucky with a lot of our people that they're really open to talk to about yeah. kind of whatever we want to talk about. And then we do give kind of topics because if we want them to have data or, you know, accessible, I can think about, and, and you know, people, our, our... And I understand that people may be like, don't even give them topics because mm-hmm. we want to make sure, like, these politicians aren't babies. No. But, but I, I also am like, well, if you're trying to get information out of them, like, they should know what's coming from a general standpoint so they can answer the question authoritatively. I mean, the best example of that is Dan Hogg when we had over talk about ARPA and CARES funding. Like, we want to know about money. Yeah. We want to know about specific numbers. And we should let them know, hey, we're going to ask about this part of ARPA because we want to actually get – because ultimately we want to inform our listeners. That, and and if they the say, point. I don't know, it's about an, that's it, not a good dialogue. Like, again, I've said this before. It, it does not make for good radio for somebody to come up here. You would ask them a question and then say, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. know. Yeah, totally. It's not useful. But, so, yeah, as far as the best, but, you know, what's the best way to a candidate? To, I don't know. I'm, I'm Obviously, this is a joke, but, you know, flattery, flowers. Well, you know, bribery, <laughs> yeah, you know, stuff like that. No. <laughs> anyway, so our last question. Um, we are running out of time, so we have time for one more question, which comes from a lawmaker themselves. We have Senator Lauren Arthur, who asks, why is Senate coffee better than House coffee? I don't know the answer to this, but she is definitely right. The Senate coffee is awesome. It's probably because the Senate is superior to the House. <laughs> And they have more power and prestige. So many friends of this episode, Jason. (laughs) And and that may be why it is. And I know that a lot of my friends who are serving the Missouri House are going to be very upset. But but why do all the House members want to run for the Senate? Like they clearly want, they clearly know the Senate is better. And the reason why they're running 
clearly is the coffee. Clearly the coffee and not their you know ability to effectuate change through the filibuster. So with that, our mailbag is empty, but really we're out of time. So thank you for everyone who submitted their questions to us. If we didn't get to it, we apologize. But, you know, we're probably going to do this again. This I is a lot so. of fun. I think we'll keep doing this. Without you, this episode would not have happened. So thank you to those who submitted. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri, St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg. Jason, where can people follow you on Twitter? Jay Rosenbaum. Until next time, so long.